You're listening to Bethany Radio. More content is available on iTunes or online at BethanyBibleLeroy.com. Turn there this morning. I want you to turn to Romans again, chapter, chapter one. We're we're going to hang in chapter one one more week, and I'll explain that in a minute. Um, Sonia has this picture from last week that is in there, and she drew this. We talked about Romans one being this this good kind of documentary that you come away with with a lens towards what is this world, what is the nature of this world, and the, the lusts of man's heart and given over to sin and she drew this out and um one of the chairs says i what am i missing i have no idea um and you've got over here an inchworm and i remember sonia what she was getting at is this bowing down to things like worms right so um an inchworm over there and just the futility bowing down to a lie like the idol that is not truth well we want to be grounded in god's truth and so we turn to his word today uh, once again in Romans chapter 1. Thank you, Sonia, for the picture. I want to start in verse 18, and I'm just going to read through verse 32 once again. You might say this is repetitive. It, it is, and we're hanging here one more time, and we want to hear just a bit more, think a bit more on what is, what is said here in this passage and the, and the broadness that it opens to us in the rest of Scripture. So, God's Word says this in verse 18 of Romans chapter 1. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they're without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things and inchworms. That's not in there, but stuff like that. Verse 24, Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, their gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. 
Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Let's pray once again. Dear Lord, we are in need this morning of your Holy Spirit to work amongst us, to open blind eyes once again to see the truths of your word. And when those truths come to us from your word, and through the preaching of your word, may we surrender to you truly. May our hearts be in submission to what you would have for our lives, everything. May we surrender to you. You are the authority. You are God. You are the creator. You have designed everything. And may we be those people who are under you and who are reconciled to you through the blood of Jesus Christ. So Lord, grant us um, wisdom and guidance as we think on these things today in your word. I pray in your name. Amen. You have probably heard it said uh, that the best way to learn how to spot a counterfeit, like counterfeit money, when they study that kind of thing, they, try to, they study the, the real thing. Um, Tim Challies, maybe some of you are subscribed to his blog. He actually kind of was like, well, is that really true? He went to a bank in Canada and, and uh, interviewed, you know, those that search out counterfeit. Yeah, it's true. It's, the, it's, how, it's how it's done. If you want to know what's counterfeit, you study the real thing. Studying what's, what's authentic, studying what's real, it helps in the identifying of what's fake or not the real thing. Such as, there's a difference between great value, Walmart brand grape juice, and Welch's grape juice. We do Welch's when we celebrate communion, because it's just better. And you know, and I'm not, not, maybe you're a great value fan, I'm there for the cost, but if you're going to go, go with Welch's. It's, it's the real deal. Uh, or there's plants. You know the difference between real plants and fake plants and we just we've got this idea because with real you can you smell or you feel there's this you understand and you can discern the the natural versus what's unnatural here's the point when you know what's true and real you can spot what is fake and what is distorted and in our day and in paul's and earlier there is a pandemic to use that word what a common word these days, right? Pandemic of distortion when it comes to God's design for men and women. And be, because of that, because of the distortion, because sexuality is um, so challenged in so many different ways, I want to take an opportunity today just to set before us again, what, what is the good, what's the real, what's the authentic design of God in this area so that we might be prepared to spot what is fake, what is distorted. And so this passage allows us to go back and do that just a little bit, to think on that because it's so prevalent around us today. Um, as we think on some of these issues, and parents, I'll try to use words that you can understand, but you get what I'm saying through this, but um, I am indebted to the work. Some of you went through our Concerning Matters class last not this last fall, but a year ago with Joe Dallas. He is helpful to me in thinking in the area of homosexuality in particular and this idea of creation 
and then corruption. And so I'm going to kind of borrow from that places here. Um, I've also been helped by Kevin DeYoung's book. It's in our library here, a very short book, but just filled with helpful things. What does the Bible really teach about homosexuality? Very helpful if you've, if you've heard arguments or the Bible doesn't say this or that or you've got those things that's there and you've got a list in your bulletin of some of those resources that you can use as well. So I'm kind of building from some of that, but really just want to think through uh, these areas. And so for now, we want to head back. Let's head back to where it was good, where the design came from, and guess where we're going to go is the book of Genesis. So we're going to work out of there for a little while here this morning. So I want you to turn back to Genesis. I presume a lot of these chapters, even verses, you are quite familiar with. It is nothing particularly new, but just helpful to get everybody that we're on the same page, that we want to look at God's good and natural design first in what He has created. What is God's design for what He's created? So we're beginning to look at what the real thing, what's authentic. And so we come to Genesis and particularly, we're going to look, start in verse 26 here. Up to this point, God's been creating. He's created day and night. He's separated land and sea, uh, sky. He's created what? Seed-bearing and fruit-bearing plants and trees and the sun and the moon and the stars and all the animals to do what? To bear fruit and multiply and fill the earth. And then we get to verses 26, and I'll read through 28. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Male and female. These are not designations made up by man. Here we're in the very first chapter of the Bible And they're not only called male and female, they are what? They are blessed by God. God has blessed them, each one equally made in this image of God, having value and being unique among creation. And at the same time, they're also distinct with their own God-given role to fulfill. Being in Genesis, let's just jump forward to Genesis 2, verse 18. And in Genesis 2.18, we're kind of backtracking a bit. It's almost like there's, there's the account of creation, and then Genesis 2 just takes us back like a magnifying glass to zoom in. And we are at that point where the woman has yet to be created by God. And here we find something is not good in the beginning. In creation, verse 18 of chapter 2, Then God said, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. This idea of making a helper for Adam has the idea of an an aid, a support, like an an assistant, assistance. Then you've got this uh, helper fit 
for him. This idea of fit means literally like to his opposite. If, you got, if you're reading an NASB, you've got maybe uh, a helper suitable for him or corresponding to him, I think is another way they put it. So in this account, no other created beast, no other bird, nothing's fit for Adam. Not even man's best friend, a dog, is found to be that fit of a helper as what God is about to make. So look then in verses 21 through 23. Skip down a little bit. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs, closed up its place with flesh, And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Kevin DeYoung writes this. He says, Adam delights that the woman is not another animal and not another man. She is exactly what the man needs. A suitable helper, equal to the man, but also his opposite. So both here, both are made in the image of God, but, and this is contrary to the massive pull of our culture and our own wayward hearts, each has been given a role by God for his glory. Paul lays it out in Ephesians 5, where he says this, wives, Submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. And to the husbands being the head, they're told to what? To love your wives as Christ loved the church. God designed men to lead in the relationship, to be responsible, to love. And God designed wives to come alongside, to help. And yes, that S word, to submit. It's the plan of God. And... They're designed to bear fruit from oneness. Look then just at the the next two verses. Verse 24, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Here again, De Young, he connects both the physical oneness and then the role of each distinct one. And he says this, the ish, that's the Hebrew for man, the ish, and then the isha, that's woman, isha. Is, uh, I believe it's a feminine ending to ish, so there's ish and isha. The man and the woman can become one flesh because theirs is not just a sexual union, but a reunion. The bringing together of two differentiated beings with one made from and both made for the other. The design of God is this oneness of a husband and wife in a covenantal marriage blessed by God. Jesus affirms this. It's not just Genesis. This is not just Old Testament. This is Jesus in Matthew 19 saying, Have you not read that He who created them from the beginning made them male and female? There's that. And said, looking back here, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. This is one husband for one wife to be one flesh in a blessed, loving union. 
And this is good. This is a good oneness. I won't read all of Song of Solomon. It's, it's a good oneness. I picked up from Proverbs 5.18. I think we, we might have come along this in our reading this week. It says this, It admonishes the son to what? Rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. There's other things there. And to what? Be intoxicated always in her love. This is good. Proverbs 18.22 He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. The bringing together of a man and wife in a beautiful union, physically, emotionally, spiritually, it's a union blessed by God and it's to be very celebrated. It's a good thing. Hebrews 13 reminds us, let marriage be held in honor among all. It is a good thing. And then from this oneness, in a very real, physical way, designed by God, there's bearing fruit. It's create creation patterns this. We see this in seed-bearing plants and fruit-bearing trees and animals. But the apex is reached in this husband and wife who through their oneness bear fruit. But there's one more design, and, it, and it's kind of where all the designs point to. And it's this design of glorifying God. The Westminster Shorter Catechism, the question number one says this. What a good question it is. What is the chief end of man? What is man all about? Answer, to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Psalm 97.1 puts it this way. The Lord reigns, let the earth rejoice. Let the many coastlands be glad. There's only one reigning and exalted God, and that is to the one to whom all creation is to ascribe glory and strength and worship to this one God. Our joys and longings and desires are to be in the Lord, and thus man and wife together, they're designed to bring this glory to God. We'll see that in a little bit. So the first point, and I don't normally put notes in your, in your uh, sermon notes there, but it's God's good and natural design is in what He has created. This is the true. This is the real. This is the Welch's grape juice, to use a poor illustration. This is the real thing. This is the authentic design of God. But we know this design has been the other. See, it's been corrupted. Man's desires have been corrupted. That's what we've been looking at in Romans 1. And since we're here in Genesis, it's just a turn of the page or just look over on the other side of the page where this corruption finds the headwaters, the, the, the beginning of. And I'll read again this familiar fall here in Genesis 3, verses 1 through 7. Listen again, though, with fresh ears. Just see what takes place that's going to explain the departure of design and desires. It says this, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, 
and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened. Remember before? They were naked. They were not ashamed. Now they knew they are naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. In this moment, Adam and Eve, they rebelled against their Creator, seeking their own delights, their own desires, and shame and death and corruption comes rushing in to all mankind, and thus sin corrupts God's good and natural designs. His designs are, in fact, they're perverted. It's interesting, this word perverted or pervert. I looked it up, Webster's 1828 Dictionary. What a great dictionary. It says this, of the, of the, the very word, the, the idea of perverted or pervert. It means to turn from truth, propriety, or from its proper purpose, to, to, to distort from its true use or end. Perversion a great description of every heart in rebellion to God. Has God made you a boy or a girl? Has He made a man for a woman? This is God's good design and yet our own sinful flesh, the society, culture, the world around us, our adversary, the devil, erode and pick away and we see it all over this design. And what God has intended. Truth is discarded. It's suppressed, we read about. God's honor is distorted as sinners are turned into little, little G, little gods. Little gods who culture now supports and says you, you make your own dis- determination of who you want to be. You figure whatever you want to be, you just be that. And you're like, it's just some, you know, you be you. Just go with it. Go with that, whatever that desire is. Sin distorts male and female. Secondly, it works to distort even even the oneness in a good marriage. Oneness in marriage. If, If you're still in Genesis 3, look over at verse 16. The curse comes upon the fields and man and the serpent. And and then verse 16 says, Interestingly, we read this of the woman being cursed. Look at what it says here. Just think about this. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. My version says here, Your desire shall be for your husband. Maybe yours says, Shall be contrary to your husband. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. So there's this, there's this multiplied pain in childbirth comes back to this. And I would argue that desire, desire even in, in, a, in a relationship of marriage, is altered. Think of where the woman was to be this helper coming alongside the man to submit. And insti- instead that desire makes a shift towards a desire for her husband. And I, I think in a, in a contrary way, I think in a way to rule, to be head, if you will. It's flipped. And yet this husband is going to rule over her and the husband faces his own in sin battles of wrong, selfish desires when it comes to that ruling. It's just, it's a mess. It's distorted. 
I don't have exact statistics on this, but how many commercials do you see when they portray a husband and wife? We notice this sometimes when we're, when we're watching or you watch a show, whatever. How is the husband, I mean, this plays out, you see it. How is he normally portrayed? Normally, he's a goofball. He's, he's stupid or he's dumb or just, you know, like, and the wife is portrayed as wise and having, having this smart and, those, and there's this kind of this glance at the bumbling husband. What a, what a moron. We see it in this. I'm not saying women aren't wise. Don't hear that. Or some men, we just do stupid things. But you see, it's just, it's in what we watch. It's just this, this bent towards a shift out of God's design. The roots are here in Genesis, let alone all the other roots of all the other perversions of marriages and lifestyles and choices that we see around us. At this point now, let's go back to Romans 1. And I just want to read a chunk that I've already read. I won't read the whole thing again. But let's, having got, there's our foundation for both. Let's head back to Romans 1. And here, kind of again, just we've got a front row seat now to this fruit. What, what kind of fruit bearing now? We were to bear fruit. Well, it's bearing fruit now, but it is bearing fruit of those who have been given over by God to their sin. I'll just start in verse 21 through 27. For all, think about this fruit now and look at it. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. They became futile in their thinking. Their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust, there's this passions of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And then 26 and 27. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged the natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. Now we've got the basis for that from Genesis. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women, how God designed, and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. The fruit, unnatural relations, dishonoring of their bodies, dishonorable passions, impurity, futile thinking, foolish, darkened hearts, shameless acts, let alone the 21 things that we looked at in verses 28 through 30, uh, 31 last week. That ought, those things that ought not to be done. Ultimately, in God's giving up of men and women to themselves, there's an exchange of desires. Joe Dallas puts it this way, our desires are in conflict. Especially how the human race conducts itself sexually. And really no matter what the sin, could be homosexuality, could be coveting, slander, on and on and on, it comes down to a conflict of once. You ever try to get a three-year-old son or daughter to do what they don't want to do? Yeah, it's hard. 
I don't want that. It's really hard. Those wants are ingrained and they're hardened. Our wants are strong. And so sin corrupts God's good and natural design for men and women. It erodes at oneness. And instead, it bears, instead of bearing good fruit, it bears these fruits of impurity. Ultimately, sin exchanges this desire for God with a desire and passion for self-pleasure. Give me what I want. Creation, corruption. How does the Bible offer any hope for the sinner? Is there restoration for what's been lost through this fall? And this is what Scripture reveals. The cross of Christ restores what was lost. Only here do we find hope in the cross, in Christ. Let me just say this, that this restoration is by First, foremost, by the grace of God, where God's Holy Spirit makes alive, as Milt read from, He makes alive what was dead. God's Spirit frees the one enslaved to my own passions and my own sins, and He frees us, grants us, as we talked about last week, these spiritual eyes to see our own sin, to repent from it, to turn from it, and then turn to Jesus Christ, who did what on the cross? He bore all that wrath, that all that sin and unnatural and the 21 and everything else, and He bore that on the cross in our place where we should have. He reveals this to us. It's the, as verse 16 talks about in Romans, the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. So I want to look briefly then at each distortion. And, and in these, if you've been able to kind of follow a mental outline, I've kind of pointed out three things in in each time of creation, um, I want to look at, back on these of how the cross of Christ restores these things. How does the cross of Christ restore our identity as men and women? That was the first one. We were created as men and women. It's distorted. How does the cross of Christ restore that, our identity? I would say propose because it restores us to our Creator, to the One who made us. Listen to 1 Peter 2. Verses 24 through 25, it says this. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep. Oh yeah, we were. But have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Christ's death on the cross is the prodigal, the prodigal's way back home to be who God has designed us to be. Our relationship to that Creator is restored to God through the cross of Christ, healed through the cross, that we might be the man we're intended to be, the woman, the boy, the girl, who God has intricately and perfectly designed you to be, though sin mars it. So the cross restores our identity. The cross restores our oneness. It restores our oneness and bears God-glorifying fruit. It's number two. Ephesians 5, I referenced this before, but it says this. I want you to connect. It's going to talk about wives and husbands, mission, leading, that sort of thing. 
Think of it in terms of the cross. Paul says this, Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her that He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word. Marriage is to be a picture to the world of this Gospel, of Christ and His bride, the church. That's what the marriage is for. Husbands in Christ, they are restored to love their wives and give themselves up for her as we look of what Christ did for His church. This is convicting husbands. Is that what your loving looks like? And then wives in Christ are restored to submit to their husbands in what way? Just as the church is in submission to Christ. And all of us are called to that. Perhaps, though, and I want to speak just real briefly, you find yourself today, you're not a husband or wife, you're unmarried. You're, you're single. Maybe you're divorced. Maybe things are troubled in that marriage. I'm, I'm not saying the cross of Christ will lead you to finding that husband or wife or will, will automatically fix a divorce or a troubled marriage. The call here for you there is simply just examine your own heart if single then in christ be the single male or female or man or woman god has called you to be if divorced or a troubled marriage own whatever sin you can own your own sin enjoy christ yourself and and then entrust your spouse to the lord peter talks about first peter talks about this adorning this inner adorning and if abuse is the case in that marriage, then, then get help, for even that is showing love to your spouse. As to bearing fruit, those in Christ bear God-glorifying fruit. Jesus says this, John fifteen five: Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. The cross reconciles. It restores us to God our Maker. And thus through His Spirit then we bear fruit for Christ. And then lastly, number three, the cross of Christ restores our desires and our passions for God. Restores those. Here's how Galatians 5.24 puts it. And those who belong to Christ Jesus, and you begin to see this in many places, I think. And for those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Where are those passions and desires killed and crucified at the cross as one comes to Christ? It's a work of God's grace to those to repent and turn to Christ in faith, to die to self and to live for Him. And then God's Holy Spirit dwells with Him. And even though we, we live, we were talking in Sunday school about this, already not yet, we, we battle with this flesh. It's a battle. We feel that. But the victory is won. For God is faithful, and He is faithful and will be faithful to complete what He has begun. Those in Christ are renewed to say with the psalmist, 
Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. It's a Holy Spirit brought change as we come to Christ. As I conclude here, I realize this is not all that could be said. And maybe even in some little part of what I've said, questions just pop up in your mind. Or, or you've got, and you, you want to talk more. Can I just encourage you, grab an elder, grab somebody here you trust, talk to me afterwards, and ask and sort these things out. Um, listed some resources in your bulletin, the book, uh, this. I'll put in the in the library after today. You've got that. It's just helpful. Goes through some of the passages. Really helpful in terms, you know, you maybe you're somebody's objecting and saying, well, those things, you know, the rules in Leviticus, that was for back then and this is now and or, you know, it's never meant, whatever. It's helpful for that. So let it be a good resource or order it on your own and have it have it in your house. Um, there's another book mentioned there, Recovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, Piper and Grudem. Or the Dallas, I just put in the, the YouTube link there. You can just type that in or find him, Joe Dallas, and listen there. I want to acknowledge today, even you, you, you might be in our midst, you might be wrestling with your own identity. In the words, the world's telling you, just, just be you. Fulfill those desires. Or, or maybe, maybe you're here and you're quietly in shame. Because you've got thoughts you hope nobody here ever finds out about. I don't know what's all in our minds, and we can get really worried. Can I just encourage you today? Get some help. But in the end, where do you need to run? Run to the cross. Run to Jesus, for He loves sinners. All whatever those odd thoughts you just think, no Christian thinks this way. Probably and run to Jesus. I'll finish with a quote from Kevin DeYoung. He writes this, We need truth. We need grace. We need Jesus. Only Jesus can save a wretch like me. That's the storyline of the Bible and the best news you'll ever hear. Jesus saves sinners, the cowardly and the cantankerous, the loveless and the lawless, the rude and the reckless, the adulterous and the idolatrous, the sexually proud and the sexually impure. Only in Jesus can we be given new birth. Only through Jesus can we be new creations. Only with Jesus can all things be made new. Let's pray. Lord, what grace to save wretches like us who are running in rebellion against You. And in Your grace, the Son of God bearing the wrath of sinners on that cross, You mercifully made a way for us to be restored to You. You are gracious and kind to the sinner running to You. Lord, I pray for the one with those dark thoughts that confession would bring healing. Confessing to you, maybe confessing to a trusted brother or sister around them for healing to walk with you once again because the cross 
is our salvation. And we are saved by the blood of Christ. And Lord, as your new creatures in Christ, for those that know Christ, may we walk in that newness. May our marriages be pictures to Leroy and Riceville and Cresco and Forestville and Adams and Teope and all these other towns and countrysides of the gospel of Jesus Christ when they look at us and forgive us for where we have marred the gospel. Lord, raise up marriages here that they would be covenantally till death do us part marriages. And for those struggling and troubled, may you help each one to turn to you, Jesus, and embrace you, be comforted in you even amidst suffering that goes on. We pray for this. We thank you for your grace. Lead us on, Lord, by that grace. In Jesus' name. You've been listening to Bethany Radio, a production of Bethany Bible Church in Leroy, Minnesota.